Welcome to the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86. While the podcast team behind the scenes was sharing with me ideas for episodes, one of the stories I really didn't know a lot about was the legend of the Four Horsemen. The Four Horsemen, you say? Yeah, four Gonzaga parents who made the journey in December of 1973 to Baltimore to visit the provincial of the Society of Jesus and make the case to keep Gonzaga open and on I Street. So who were these guys? When we did most of the recording for this episode in May, three of the four horsemen had already passed away. We were talking to the last living member, John Carmody of the class of 54. John passed away in July, but not before we had a chance to visit with John, as well as Tom Delaney, class of 75. Tom's father, John Delaney, along with John Hurton and Mike Miskoski, were the four parents who successfully made the case to keep Gonzaga open and the success that Gonzaga's enjoyed the last 50 years, the renaissance of the late 70s and early 80s, the championship banner since, all goes back to 1973. In the early 70s, in front of Gonzaga, there was no football fields. There was two blocks of row houses, which were all beaten down. It was a very dispirited place. Father Sweeney, who was then president, formed a development committee. It had a lot of pretty serious guys on it. At that time, the board was completely split apart as to what they wanted to do. There were some people who advocated for closing the school. There were some people who said merge with Georgetown Prep and have an uptown campus and a downtown campus. Not a whole lot of them, but they were vocal. There were some that said just try to ride it out. And there were some that said, well, ride it out, but go big time. Frankly, it was a very bitter fight. People were serious about their positions. Everything was grinding to a halt. Nothing was getting done. And it was bitterness, literally, among the people who had different ideas. Now, Tom, you remember the class of 75. What do you remember about your dad's feelings and his position on which way things should go? My father, for those who knew him, truly is one of those people that bled purple and white. And for him, uh, committing to I Street, committing to the sustained future of Gonzaga, was something that he felt really in his heart was fundamental. He saw Gonzaga not only as his alma mater and the place where he had decided lovingly to send his three boys, which, you know, when John said it was, it was some rough times down here when, when we first came to the campus. He understood that Gonzaga was an essential institution to the city. You know, to put things in context that John was saying, at that time, you know, the city was hurting. I started three years after the riot, so classmates before me were here during the riots. And and that was an extremely difficult period, not only for Gonzaga, but for the city itself. For the city to rebound and to really come back from from those difficult days required institutions in the city to sustain themselves. So my father, what I heard around the dinner table was discussions about not only was Gonzaga important as an institution unto itself, but it was very important as an institution for the city as well. And if the city was going to heal, Gonzaga had to sustain and fulfill a mission, not only for its its historic characteristic uh, student body, but for others around the city as well. And so that that was a that was one of the fundamental uh, concerns that he had. So, John, the legend of the four horsemen, give us some background on each one's role with the school. Obviously, they were part of this committee. Father 
screening and performance committee you know, by 20 people. We got permission from the 20 people to go up to Baltimore as a subcommittee. And I was on it. Among them were Tom's father, president of the Illinois Association, head of the board of trustees, Mike Muskoski, and, and John Hurton, to whom I think this board owes an immense debt. He was an assistant secretary of transportation. Hurton, he's here from California. He was a parent. And smart man. Gonzaga was in a federal city with so many government workers who knew the school, knew about it as a place that they could potentially send their children. John was our spokesman. I do remember as we spoke to the um, provincial that John described Gonzaga. He said it's a unique place. You just imagine a circle, and that's called Swamp Poodle. And Gonzaga was the center of Swamp Poodle having been deeply involved in founding Sirs McCorder and such. But it was the center of the city, which is another circle was the center of the United States, since we are the capital of the United States. And then finally, capital of the world. Let us, the four, make a, a shot at trying to put together a development plan to keep it where it is, hopefully to make it into what it is today. So, Tom, what's that like for you and your fellow classmates when you know the future of the school is going to be on I Street? Is there some excitement that starts building on campus? We were here to see the the first steps to what the modern campus started to look like. We saw the houses that, as John mentioned, they, they were dilapidated row houses that had been really just shelter for homeless people for a little bit of time there. We saw those houses come down. Gonzaga was able, through an arrangement with the city, to acquire that land, which was a big step unto itself. And then over the period of my junior and senior year, a lot of that work was being done. While the construction was an important outward visible sign of the change of the campus and the dollar investment that people were willing to make in the campus, there was a more subtle but equally important investment that the Jesuits made, which is that they invested a number of very young, bright Jesuits to come and they put human capital into the place. They didn't necessarily put dollars into it. The excitement grew because of their enthusiasm. The excitement grew because of what we could see coming in terms of the field. Remember, this is a a student body that throughout its our time, we never had a home game on a field. We never had a home game in a gymnasium in our time here. So to see those physical things coming, there was just Maybe just a tinge of regret that we couldn't be there for that for that first game in our year, but we were we were equally excited by that. And and you could see the impact it started to have because while our class I think was the smallest, but the class behind us was significantly increased. So you started to see we were starting to climb back up in terms of enrollment, and a lot of that is just the injection of excitement that came as a result of Gonzaga being able to say we're here and we're here and we're, we we have an offering that while our physical plant needs to be upgraded, we have an offering inside those classrooms that, that can't be equaled by a lot of schools. John, with your legal background, your knowledge of the ins and outs of real estate in Washington, D.C., you were integral in a lot of the incremental expansion of Gonzaga's footprint to what it is today in 2021. How much pride does that give you knowing how close it was to going the other way back in December of 1973. It is really, it is dramatic, the change. Yet the school has kept its spirit. It's just grown into something phenomenal. I have three sons who went here, two grandsons. As my children, they say, I talk about nothing except Gonzaga. So I'm not 
articulate enough to put it into words, but it is a, a dramatic change, both physically and spiritually. That's what I feel about the school. It's a great, what you guys did was a great achievement. It was really. One thing I'd like to say is when we left that meeting, the last thing Father Panuska said to us is, I will supply you with Jesuits, but I make no promises. So it was not a go ahead and do what you want kind of thing, but it's still very much up in the air. And it took many, many years to get to where we are today. And, and a lot of people who, who should be named uh, like Stu Long. You know. There's so many families and so many people. That's right. I think the families of the 70s whose sons went there and who's they sent their sons down there. We're almost sending them into war, so it was that bad. It takes a lot of courage. As a student here in that time, you truly did feel like you were a bit of an urban pioneer, but you were proud to do that because as a, as a citizen of the city or at least the, the suburbs as well, to be part of something that, that where the city was regenerating itself from a difficult period, we could feel that. We could feel that as students and, and it was an important, uh, it was important. Now, Tom, you and John have both mentioned how the Jesuits committed to providing human capital to I Street as the investment in the school continued. And arriving in 1974 as the new president of the school was Father Bernie Dooley. John, did you have any idea how special Father Dooley was going to be to the history of Gonzaga when he arrived in 1974? I believe I was on the committee to select him. And it was a shoe in because he was... He had a PhD in uh, urban education, and he had a tremendous track record. I was happy as a clam. I think we have to note that Father Dooley had a lot of qualities about him. First of all, he was—he somehow could connect with people in a way that was really exceptional. He was just a, a, a remarkable person in the way he he could connect with with people. His stories—he was comfortable around all sorts of people. He also had a real knack for fundraising. Father Dooley was a transitional figure in the sense that he understood as the head of a school that there's an important responsibility, not only administratively to run the school, but to to focus on its financial well-being. And he was really a dynamo when it came to raising money and starting a a different approach to to doing that. Uh, I I hesitate to use this word, but it's true. I think he professionalized that a bit at, at Gonzaga. Now, John, speaking of Father Dooley's ability as a fundraiser, there's a story about his first day on the job and how that planted the seed for the Carmody Center. It was his first day on the job. It was around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I thought I'd wait a little while. And I called him up and I said, Father, you don't know who I am. We have a situation, literally an act of Congress pending, which would allow Gonzaga to borrow money at eight and a quarter percent, uh, which seems very high today. And it had to be done that day, and uh, or it wouldn't be done. So I said, are you in or out? He said, well, thank you, sir, for calling me, but I couldn't possibly make that decision right now. But then it shifted into, well, <laughs> when are you going to put the money up for this gymnasium? And when will this occur? So Father Dooley turned it around on you. I love that. And that was really basically kind of push the uh, Carmody family, uh, especially my mother, wanted to make a donation in my father's name. Not the largest the school ever got, but it was a substantial donation. Well, it was timely. It was, it was timely. necessary. That's the important part. And it was done. 
So Tom, from your vantage point as a student and then a, a recent graduate in 1975, as the gym construction begins, what's the vibe like on I Street? It was, like, it was almost unbelievable that there could be a gym on campus. We had the football field, of course. It also, it shouldn't be ignored, you know, we, it also brought the Gonzaga smoker out of the, out of the basement cafeteria and into a much larger space where we all could congregate and, and, and really appreciate a big space in another way, which, you know, I mean, that's not necessarily what an athletic space is all about, but it's, it's important too for the broader community to have those kinds of meeting spaces. And, and the gym provided that as well. Now, the Carmody Center opened in 1977, but that actually was not the original plan for a gymnasium for Gonzaga College High School. The original location was supposed to be actually down on the corner of North Capitol Street. It originally was designed by Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, top architects in the country who did everything in limestone and marble, like the National Geographic. And as a result of this meeting that we had in Baltimore, that was scrapped and we paid them off. And then they decided to put the gym behind the theater onto what was then part of a parking lot. Instead of building with limestone, it was a steel erector building. And it was completely steel, except they covered two sides of it with brick. And it was much, much cheaper to do it that way. You got exactly what you would have gotten in the other one. John, I love that this is one of the first decisions made after the visit to Baltimore. And you guys are coming up with solutions that are saving the school money, but you're also taking into account how that gym and where that gym actually is will impact student life. Having the gym behind the theater turned out to be pretty cool. It was almost unbelievable that you could tuck it in there and have a full-blown gym. Then you heard about the construction approach and you were thinking, gee, is it going to be just a shed? And no, they, they actually, the, the, the brick facades came, out, came across very well and integrated with the rest of the school. The nice thing was that the gym also really connected directly with the physical plant, whereas if it was across the football field, you would have had to do, go across there as a student to use the gym. So it was, it was extremely exciting, the idea that you would have this, uh, this opportunity on campus and the idea also of alumni games so that we could at least have a chance to play on there for, you know, occasionally was at least a bit of an inducement to, to add to our excitement. So the ripple effect of the Carmody Center, and not just the Carmody Center, but just the decision that, yes, a gym is coming, that impacts Father Dooley's hiring of Coach Dick Myers and the resurgence of the basketball program led by superstar and Gonzaga Hall of Famer Tom Sluby. We'll get to a visit with Tom, Coach Myers, and a whole bunch of folks from that era in a later episode. But John, do you remember some of those early games when the Carmody Center had just opened? One thing I remember is Coach Myers was very smart. He scheduled the same school three times in 10 days. So we get three W's. You know, I was the uh, editor of the Aquilian when I was a senior. And one of the things that Father Dooley actually, I think, helped orchestrate is our being able to announce Dick Myers' hiring in the newspaper. Myself and uh, another uh, classmate, Pat Casey, who was the sports editor, interviewed Coach Myers. And and you're Brian, you're right. It, it was, he saw a great potential in Gonzaga. And I think that was, I, I can't imagine without a gym on the, on the horizon, he could have invested what he did here because we had no other place to play. I mean, we practiced in that little gym and that soon is to be reimagined into new space, which is exciting. But right then, 
that was the facility for, for the teams. And recruiting was a thing even at that time. You had to try to attract uh, talented students and players and to, be, to take them to, to the gym and to show them where they were going to be spending a lot of their time. It wasn't a very uh, attractive opportunity. And so the, the Carmody gym was an, an enormous step to bring Gonzaga along. For anyone who's had the opportunity to enjoy that place when it's packed and Gonzaga is playing a WCAC rival, quality of play is great. The level of crowd interaction with the play, it's a, it's a special, it's a special gym. And not every gym has that somehow embraces the spirit of the school as much as the Carmody Center did. The positive impact on the Gonzaga spirit that the Carmody Center had, that Buchanan Field had as it grew and expanded, it's also carried over into other parts of the campus. A lot's been done even in the last 20 or 30 years to improve the experience for Gonzaga students. We've talked a lot, the two big steps in terms of Buchanan Field and the Carmody Center. Those were obviously necessary improvements because Gonzaga had no ability to have on-campus athletics. But... It is an educational institution after all, and to have the science capabilities, having computer-assisted learning and computer capabilities was critical to being able to offer a modern-day education to today's students. Those developments were really essential to being able to offer a fully rounded educational opportunity. And while I think Gonzaga has always been blessed with an amazing, talented, and dedicated faculty, you still need to have the physical facility to offer the strong science courses, a library, the computer and other related courses. And how amazing was the renovation they did with the Sheehy Theater? You know, as one who spent four years on and off in the uh, Dramatic Society, we loved the old theater, but we also wished often for something that was just a little more up to date and a little bigger and, and some of the amenities that you would see today in a modern theater. And so those are things that even when I, even back in the seventies, when the football program wasn't doing so well, the theater program was actually much of the heart and soul of the school and helped to carry the school during a lot of that time. So to see the Sheehy Theater catch up, as it were, to, to what that part of the Dramatic Society did for the school, I think was tremendous. Tom, I still remember Paul Buckley taking members of the class of 86 at our 30th reunion behind the scenes and what stage crew has to work with now, that wood shop and workshop that they have. It's, it's unbelievable. It's incredible, Brian. It's the idea that you have this whole workshop off to the side. These guys can be putting together these, you know, beautiful sets. They used to have to wait until after rehearsal to start while, you know, the kids were dedicated. That, by definition, limited how much you could do. And so just to have that with the proper equipment, proper safety, all of that stuff is really turned that whole program, I think, up to another level. Tom, I know it gives you great pride that you're the son of one of the four horsemen, John Delaney. But as you look at the group, your dad, John Carmody, John Wharton, Mike Miskoski. Do you ever think about the impact the Four Horsemen had on this neighborhood, not just Gonzaga, but the neighborhood around I Street, because it has undergone an incredible change since the 70s as well? Well, one of the things that the Four Horsemen really saw was that Gonzaga had to do two things. They were a landlocked school in the early 70s. And that was one of our, you, you could talk about these things, but if you didn't have space, it would be difficult to, to deal with anything. So what these gentlemen did, my father was part of it, John and, and Mr. Hurton and Mr. Muskowski. What they did, they, they had that vision that Gonzaga needed to move to another, another level in terms of the footprint of the campus. And so, Brian, I think in terms of being a catalyst, 
for some of what's happened in the neighborhood. Having Gonzaga here has certainly been a help, but it's also been equally important to Gonzaga to, to sort of protect its own boundaries a bit and to, to maximize what they had and the opportunities that presented themselves. So acquiring land when they could acquire it, even if they didn't use it immediately for school purposes, but to put it into land lease opportunities, which is what some of the office buildings are. And then to, to be able to be complemented with some of the development with some trade-offs that, have, that, that can be had. When you have your own space and people need to then deal with you as a real presence in the city, what Father Dooley and others did in terms of enhancing Gonzaga's ability to create more physical space was really critical to positioning Gonzaga today. But I, but I think looking for the next for the next century and beyond really is going to be critical as well because you can't create a, a footprint you know out of nothing. When those opportunities present themselves to even expand incrementally, a school like Gonzaga has to take advantage of that. Tom, I really appreciate your perspective on all of this, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you were maybe a little bit excited that a member of your graduating class, the class of 75, includes the new president of Gonzaga, Father Joe Lingen. Joe was remarkable as a student even then because Joe always exhibited a level of of personal responsibility, of thoughtfulness. We knew he was a smart, studious guy, but of thoughtfulness and, and personal responsibility as a teenager, that was an example for the rest of us. Joe was part of our staff on the Aquilian. And of course, Joe would just handle things in his quiet way, be very efficient, never look to take a lot of credit for things. He's a humble person. And so those are qualities we saw in him as a student back then. For those of us that have followed Joe through his, his career as a Jesuit, they continue to be the qualities that you see in Joe. He is a thoughtful guy. He is a outstanding homilist when he says mass. And I think he's going to have a great run here as president. On Friday, September 17th, for the 37th year in a row, the extended Gonzaga community will gather with golf clubs to have fun, rekindle friendships, and raise money for scholarships for students who no longer have a father. The idea of using a golf tournament as a fundraiser for Gonzaga was being kicked around at the time, especially after a certain school had pulled off their own golf tournament. But then when the sudden death of Kevin Carmody took place in 1984, the Carmody Open Golf Tournament was born. A bunch of guys got together and said, Kevin was a terrible golfer, but it would be great to have a tournament in his memory. And if we make any money, we'll give it to the school. That's how it started. Charlie Wolf was the head of the committee, and Skip Lynch, myself, and Stu Long. We were the, I guess, the executive board. And there were 75 members of the executive. <laughs> <laughs> we pretty much fell off the golf course. Yeah, right. That's uh, how to ensure it. So the first year we had, it was fun, that we made about $15,000, which surprised us. So we decided to have it another year. Uh, I have to give thanks to St. John's. They, they had started their tournament one year before us. were very helpful to us when we did ours. But it was really... It was just to have a good time and to remember Kevin, because I'm speaking as a brother, but he was a, a remarkable person. He was captain of the football team and all met football player. He had friends everywhere. It was really an easy thing to do when you do it out of love and friendship like that. It has since grown into much bigger schools now taking it over because of the original group. Not many left. They're doing even better now in the fundraising and the 
we're usually able to fill up two golf courses. Uh, Andrews Air Force Base, three years, we would use two of their three golf courses. Now we're doing two in Montgomery County that are close to each other. So it's it's raised quite a bit of money, and it's we estimate between 60 and 70 students have you know, gotten through Gonzaga with the money from the tournament. We, just, we invested the income off the investment. I think it's still the biggest scholarship fund they have, but I'm not sure. It's really been a great thing, great honor to our family. My only wish is more people will get to know. She could have known Kevin because he, he was truly remarkable. Uh, Kevin was a happy person. And when you were around Kevin, you really felt that he was a lot of fun. Uh, and he was, it wasn't a mean bone in his body, except when he played football. <laughs> It was just fun to be with. It's now the Carmody Lynn Open, and it's just another example of the Carmody family's impact on Gonzaga, one that's going to have a ripple effect for many years to come. Now, before we wrap up this episode on the Four Horsemen and our visit with John Carmody and Tom Delaney, I want to share a personal note about the man John Carmody was that I experienced. I didn't have a lot of direct experience with Mr. Carmody, but my cousin... Joe Breen did. Joe graduated in 1954 with Johnny Carmody. They both went to Blessed Sacrament together. I believe they both were in each other's wedding. My cousin Patrick, who's a year younger than I, his godfather was Johnny Carmody. Joe Breen had a larger-than-life personality. He played sports at Gonzaga, went on to be a very successful oral surgeon. But then, tragically, he started to develop early-onset Alzheimer's in the late 1990s. And he didn't pass away until 2012. You know who visited Joe Breen until Joe passed away? Johnny Carmody. And I got to tell John just how much that meant, not just to the Breen family, but to me as well. It gave me a clear example of what true friendship is all about. I appreciate you saying that. It was, I was glad to do it. Every week I would ride, ride my bike out back, 20 mile ride, just to, just to visit with him. One time, Joe hadn't spoken for two years. I went in there trying to say some witty statement as I moved in. It was a guy walked in and I said, put me in, coach. And he says, no way. (laughs) God bless John Carmody. To the extended Carmody family, to Michael, who was a member of the class of 85, Chrissy, William, John, The grandchildren, Claire, Will, Colin, and Ryan, your dad and your granddad was truly one of the best to ever walk the halls of Gonzaga. And his impact on I Street will echo ever proudly for many years to come. All right, looking ahead to next week, we've got a special visit with Father Kevin Gillespie and also Father Tom Buckley, celebrating the importance of Father Horace McKenna. Remember to subscribe and share the Echo Ever Proudly podcast with anyone you know who loves Gonzaga. Until next week, ad maiorium dei glorium and hail Gonzaga. Martin, Gonzaga.